Stephen Halpern. Welcome to Radiant Creators. It is truly an honor. Um, I'll do a quick little read here of the first part of your bio. Um, Stephen Halpern is a Grammy Award-nominated multi-platinum selling recording artist, composer, producer, researcher, author, and pioneering sound healer. The Los Angeles Times acknowledges Stephen Halpern as a founding father of New Age music, and he truly is, who launched a quiet revolution in modern instrumental music that focused more on creating harmony, coherence, and balance rather than as mere entertainment. And that's probably enough of the reading the bio because yeah. I always, you know, that's the. As we get started, I'm going to share the screen once we talk for a minute, just so we can look at some things on your site and such. But um, how would you describe yourself? I mean, you have got an illustrious many, many decades of content that you've been creating. Is there anything, any kind of like key words you would use to describe who is Stephen Halpern? Well, uh, you read many of them. In fact, um, that was so well written. I wonder who wrote it. Um, Certainly most of that I wrote, but that's also because I am the world's leading authority on the music of Stephen Halpern. But uh, what most people don't know is that I had to learn how to do and say and write a lot of those things because I came into the work as a musician, trained uh, in college with master musicians and writers and poets that no one knows who poets are anymore. But uh, back in the mid-60s, they were still a major consideration of the heroes of our time, names like Robert Creeley, Robert Duncan, etc. And they would teach us the concept of how to be an artist. And one of the key aspects was going back to ancient Greece and Rome and, and Egypt, that an artist tunes into his or her muse. So at an early age, I started praying to turn uh, to tune into my muse because I had been uh, turned on by the experience of improvisation, of jazz improvisation, which I got turned on to in, uh, when I was in seventh grade, the first year of junior high school. And that just opened up a whole new world for me, not reading little black dots on white paper, but actually hearing things in my head and also learning all the rules of which scales go with which chords, learning music. Uh, and that was jazz. It got into blues and rock, which originally were too simple, so I wasn't concerned and interested in that. Although, yes, of course, I love the Beatles and some other things. But until rock left the role out, it became rock music. It was everything sounded like Chuck Berry to me. And that was boring because it was repetitive. When I got into improvisation, there was a creative flow and energy that started happening that turned me on. And this was way before we learned about cannabis or anything else. This was a natural high. But there was no way to make a living at that. And there were lots of other good jazz musicians. I was a trumpet player and a guitar player in those days. Those are my instruments. I performed at some major events and thought that was one of the things I'd be doing to make a living as I, after I graduated college. But I got into grad school at the University of Buffalo 
with the idea of studying healing uh, through music around the world, how did different civilizations and different cultures use sound to get them into uh, higher consciousness, into meditative states, and experience healing? There was nothing written about that. So I was going to study that. Before I went into my first semester of grad school, without getting into a whole uh, history, which I will in my memoir, I had a chance to get to California for two weeks and then go back to Buffalo. And in that two weeks, a miraculous series of coincidences and synchronicities happened that I uh, found myself in a sacred redwood grove outside of Santa Cruz was mistaken, and right before that was mistaken for someone who was applying for a staff position uh, at the one of the leading human potential seminar centers and weekend retreat centers. And uh, while I'm waiting to meet the staff to audition, because what did I have to lose? I'm going back to grad school, but let's see what, what this thing is about. This was a sister organization of the famous Esalen Institute. Well, in the, as I was hanging out in the Redwood Grove meditation area, I was basically shifted gears and put into a deep meditative state uh, spontaneously. And in that state, I started hearing different music than I had ever heard or played before. And I'm just in bliss. It was music that sounds like what I played ultimately on Spectrum Suite and uh, Chakra Suite. But I also heard a reference to my prayers of being of tuning into my my muse. And what I heard was, this is the music that you've been praying to hear. Your job is to take this out and share it with the world. Now, uh, I'm, this is 1969, so I'm what, about 22 years old, November. I have no money. I have no training in any kind of uh, commercial aspect. How do you promotion or how do you get music out to the world? How do you introduce to the public and to the music industry, a new form of music that doesn't have rhythm, that doesn't have words, that doesn't have usual chord structures, that in fact, many of the early uh, critiques said, this is not music. It doesn't have the standard Western European fundamentals of music. And I said, exactly. That's why mm -hmm. my music is more meditative and healing than all your classical music. And then, I met Dr. Stanley Krippner, who said, you know, what you say is great. What we see is great. You need to, if you want to be taken seriously, you need to do scientific research, uh, biofeedback research to prove that something is unique happening with your music. And I said, how do I do that? I don't know anything about biofeedback. I have no access to biofeedback equipment. And he said, Dr. Krippner says, I am now the dean of a new school in California that has biofeedback equipment. We would love to have somebody do research for uh, like that. And if you apply, I will guarantee that you can get in. And that's how my life changed. Uh, there was still no way to make a living at that. So it was still just research. I needed to know what was going on with this music. And in the research, we started finding out how quickly and amazingly it could balance energy fields 
uh, of, uh, in the body, like the biomagnetic energy fields around the body, how it can balance brain waves and shift us into a higher order of coherence. And in those days, and still in many circles today, people had no idea what a brain wave was. Okay, mm. this is 1970, 73. And then when, when, when I started doing concerts and playing this kind of music, people said, oh, it makes us feel so good. Uh, I've never been so relaxed. Where can we buy some of it? And there was no way to buy it. So I would make people little cassette tapes individually because they were begging. I, I want this to meditate at home. And that was time. Uh, very, uh, it used up a lot of my time and energy. Mm. And people wouldn't even pay for the cassette. So I was working for free, losing money, wasting time. And I said, obviously, the way to, to deal with this is to record an album. But in those days, you couldn't even record an album unless you were under contract to a major label because they owned all the studios. And at the end of 1974, the first independent multi-track studio in Northern California uh, was set to open the first weekend in 1975. I met that engineer at a Christmas party that I was playing trumpet and sitting in and showing off uh, at a Christmas party. And he came up to me and said, hey, you're pretty good. Do you have an album? And I said, no, but I'd love to. He says, I am just opening the first studio in Northern California. And I said, I'll be your first client. And the next week I was in his studio the weekend of January 4th and 5th recording my first album. And then the problems came up. Okay, so that's the recording. What do you do with it? How do you put an album together? What do you what do you do for the cover? Uh, and I asked people, no one knew. And I had some other people who said, yeah, we know. And they were all wrong about everything, but they took my money. Uh, and that's yeah. why my first album doesn't have my name on it, doesn't have a whole lot of things that you're supposed to have. But it was still, okay, a thousand albums show up at my, my little cottage. I gave 25 out to my friends and etc. What do you do with the other 975 albums that are sitting in your living room? That's when I realized I have to start learning about the world of business, not just the music business, but regular business distribution. How do you get this album where people would want to buy it into stores, into health food stores, into bookstores? When I would go to the metaphysical bookstores, they would say, we're a bookstore. We don't carry albums. And literally, as I was holding up my first album to try to sell it, a little old lady walks over to the bookstore and says, I'm looking for music for meditation. Can I buy that one? And the manager of the store says, Uh-oh. Well, I might have just gone offline. Oh, actually, we're, 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 we're just getting you back right now. Okay, hold on. You will be back, I'm sure. One sec. While we're working this out, I will check the connectivity on my end. And my connectivity is okay. Oh, 
Okay, wait, you're we're back you're, you're, now. You're, you're, so you're back now. I... Oh, a little bit up and down. It'll probably clear up. I don't have the image. When the little, do you see that little black thing that, that goes on? Do we lose signal? Or is that just on my end? Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's hard to tell where it actually happened. Um, okay, well, we'll just go on we, as long I, as we got, got stuff down. Yeah, yeah. And you were just saying, and the late, and the uh, the store manager said, and that's when it cut out. Ah, so we lost a lot. So the store manager said, well, I guess I better buy, you know, a dozen of your albums. And who do I return it to if they don't sell because there's no name on the album? Hello. So some of what I've learned in the world of business came from feedback from stores and people. Learning to describe the music uh, was difficult, but who, I mean, I, I hired other people to do it. And then they didn't do that good a job, so it became my job to do it. And that's what I've been doing ever since, writing the liner notes, helping design the albums, uh, and then starting to write the sales letters, hiring other people, but ultimately uh, learning to do a lot of that myself. And uh, in 1975, there were no other albums out on the market that were then being advertised around the country. Other people started uh, recording albums. Some of them were good, some not so good. But suddenly they became a new genre. And uh, the name that was attached to it was New Age Music because us musicians who were playing this kind of music were performing at New Age Expos and New Age Festivals. So the media said, we're going to call it New Age Music. The early names were space music, higher consciousness music. And the music industry said, we don't care about higher consciousness. Besides, we can't even spell it. And there's too many letters. We need something that could fit on a shelf talker at Tower Records. New age, blues, rap. We can fit that. We can't use contemporary instrumental. It doesn't fit. We can't use consciousness. So that's how the field really began to be what it is. And, and that's how I uh, started doing my first album. It wasn't an overnight success. But enough orders came in and enough interest came in that people said, what's your next album? When's your next one coming out? Well, when someone says that to a musician, you go, well, I guess I better start working on it. And that's part of how I backed into a uh, recording career. Again, knowing very little about setting up a record label, but things began to take a life, uh, take on a life of its own. And what I also did that no one else was doing at that time was I would call up yoga centers, uh, Unity Church, Science of Mind Church in various cities, certainly starting in the San Francisco Bay Area, but then in New York, in Miami, major cities where I had friends or I wanted to go or I had parents. And I would cold call places and say, uh, I'd like to offer a concert and a workshop. I will sell my albums. You don't even have to pay me. And that lasted a couple months. And then I realized that's not a, a viable economic model. So then I would start getting an honorarium. And that began. And then while I'm doing that, the first New Age Expos started to pop up. I was the first musician 
appearing there. I was the first musician giving workshops and lectures and doing concerts at those events. So that's how I started introducing the concept of new age healing music out into the world. Media would cover these events. And also when I'm at the Unity Church of Atlanta, I call up the, the big newspapers or the church would call up a newspaper and say, you need to review this guy's work because there's no one else doing that. So whether it was uh, Phoenix or Chicago or Seattle, all the major cities, I was there planting seeds, talking about a concept that no one had spoken about publicly in media, which is the ancient tradition of the healing powers of music. I was secondary. I was educating the public and the media to this concept. And I said, you know, it goes back to David's soothing soul in the Bible. I didn't invent this field, but I am the first one to put a soundtrack to it in modern times. And that was the beginning of the whole process that takes us to where I am now. Yeah, and that really was the, the gist of the first question is what inspired you to create a new musical genre? So it was deliberate, but also it, it just seems like it was your your calling. You just, as Joseph Campbell said, you really just followed your bliss. Exactly, exactly. And I, I was aware of Campbell's work. And uh, even in college, one of my uh, faculty uh, mentors put that to me just in that way. When I was looking at dropping out of college because of the Vietnam War, uh, et cetera, uh, how could, what would my main contribution be? He said, well, what is your bliss? What do you really like to do? Well, I'm really enjoying jazz improvisation uh, on trumpet. And he said, well, then become the best at what you're doing. So I really got into it and I had a chance to study with uh, the jazz legendary bass player Ron Carter. I was one of two white guys in a black study in the first black studies program of jazz improvisation at the University of Buffalo. And uh, Mr. Carter said, if you're serious about being a musician, consider that a job. You have to work at it eight hours a day. Eight hours a day? Mr. Carter, what about my university studies? He said, fit that in around your jazz studies. And that was the summer program of 1968 when I practiced eight hours a day and went from being a good musician to a musician who could sit in with anybody professionally and otherwise. And my trumpet took me to many amazing places and, and then ultimately was where I connected with the recording engineer to get me into the studio to record not my trumpet, but the electric piano music that I was channeling and that ultimately became Chakra Suite. Mm. That was the reason I did my first album. The fast jazz medley on side two was kind of an afterthought because albums, LP albums in those days, uh, you had to have two sides. So I had an easy side one because that was what I was doing in concerts. And side two, I said, well, if this is my only time in the studio, I want to have some fun with this multi-track uh, recording technology. So I recorded all the instruments myself, overdubbing one after another, with a drummer who was a friend of mine who I had never jammed with. We, we played in a band. I played guitar. He played drums. We come in and we jam. And then I overdubbed. And that song on my very first album... 
Oh, lost you there, but I have a feeling that you'll be back in just a moment. Which looks... There we are. So, that song, because it was fast and rhythmic, a lot of people who bought my first album said, we love side A, we love the first half of side B, but get rid of that fast song. We want to stay in a meditative, mellow state whether it's for massage or healing. So I listened to the public. I didn't study how to produce an album. I, I made an album that I wanted to listen to. And then when the public says, we won't buy any more albums if you put that fast stuff on, they get rid of it. Well, not only that, but uh, if you look at this album and you turn it this way, as some of the magazines and stores did, they say, we consider this album cover, which is a curly photography, an energetic bio, uh, bioelectric uh, field photograph of a philodendron leaf. But people thought it was a pornographic picture of female genitalia. <laughs> so I could not advertise it. Stores would not carry it. And that was the universe telling me, guess what? You need to change your cover. You need to change the title. And I followed instructions. And that's how Spectrum Suite, working with the electromagnetic spectrum, still chakras were not a concept that was known by the general public. This is before yoga went mainstream. So I was working with the electromagnetic spectrum of sound and color, tying that into the chakras. There's a series of seven chakras, seven tones in a major scale, and seven colors in the rainbow. So that became a, a hook that I could... Uh, present to the media that they could understand and that would get us into the the concept of how music affects us and then i talk about entrainment how any fast rhythm is going to entrain the heartbeat to match the rhythm well this is when biofeedback was becoming popular in the 70s and uh, the relaxation response was discovered by and named by Dr. Herbert Benson. And he says, if your heartbeat is beating faster than 60 beats per minute, it's virtually impossible to relax. My music was slower than that. Most everything else you hear on the radio or anywhere, including a lot of classical music, is 70, 80, 90, 100, or like disco, it's 120 beats per minute, or you know, rave music, etc. So it was physically impossible for a body to relax when your heart is being manipulated by the beat of the music. And this is automatic. This is not something you think about. You can't tell your heart, do not match the external rhythm that's playing in the background. Your heartbeat just goes, it follows. Interestingly, when I got my uh, first Grammy nomination in 2012 for Deep Alpha, the Grammys, and Billboard magazine, where I was wanted to advertise, said, uh, Mr. Halpern, you have a spelling error on the cover of your album. And I said, what do you mean? Well, they said, you spelled entertainment wrong. So I said, no, you need to understand there's a concept called entrainment, where a stronger rhythm will entrain a weaker rhythm. An external drummer will control your heartbeat. And that's how I taught the Grammys 
and Billboard magazine about the concept of entrainment, or at least those representatives. Uh, a lot of musicians know this intuitively, but not intellectually. I was dealing with both worlds, and that's how I got into really becoming a spokesman and a champion of the healing powers of music because there was no one else out there talking about it. Some years later, Don Campbell started talking about it, some others, but that was uh, they were much more classically oriented, and no one was, was really talking about how to use music meditatively and for healing, because if you use Mozart sonata in A major, that would not give you the proper uh, experience. Also, if you are listening to Mozart's sonata in A major, there are 10 different versions. They're all different. Which one was the real Mozart? Because the real Mozart might be healing, but the rest of them were more idiosyncratic and not. Uh, and in fact, as other people pointed out, Mozart was clearly a card-carrying ADHD individual, so his music would not be meditative or helping people relax. It was too busy. Even in the movie Amadeus, what does uh, the uh, was it the uh, the prince or uh, the emperor of Prussia say? Mozart, too many notes, and that was my mantra: too many notes. My graduate. Uh, professors in grad school said, you don't have enough notes, uh, enough notes. And I said, yes, that's by design. They also, you don't follow Western European classical chord patterns and structure. I said, yes, that's by design. And that's why my music is more relaxing than your Mozart or Beethoven or Bach. And that was, that was how I started making my world. I exploded the myth that the most healing music is classical music. The classical people didn't say that. And a lot of that music was designed for 200 years ago. That's not what, what our bodies needed in the late 20th century. And it's not what my body needed. And part of the reason I do what I do is because I needed something to help me relax, to help me meditate. Because I have some of these characteristics of ADD, ADHD. And this was music that particularly when I am in the recording studio, in the act of improvising, going back to my earliest days, <clears throat> improvising the compositions and recording in the moment, I have to be totally in a deep meditative state. So for me, it was one of the best ways to, shall we say, force me to get into a deeply meditative state because you can't fake this music. I mean, there are people that do, and my body can tell if there's a disconnect between the notes that are being played uh, and the state of the performer. In fact, uh, I was also one of the first people to talk publicly about the fact that if you, when I would go to a concert, before the soloist would play the first note, I would also often notice a tightness in my throat, if they were a vocalist, or a tightness in my chest. And sometimes I'd make the mistake of speaking to the person next to me and said, does your chest hurt? Are you having a problem breathing? And they move away from me. Well, years later, Dr. John Diamond became public with his book, Your Body Doesn't Lie. He's a uh, psychiatrist, was doing a lot of work with muscle testing. And he said, the reason for this is that we are picking up on the stress of the performer on stage or on record, because it comes through on the record, and most people don't notice that. Because 
my body was always very sensitive to this. I did notice that. And uh, I was one of the few people who, as I learned from John Bradshaw later on, uh, didn't care so much about being codependent. I would just speak my, my truth. And yes, some people would walk away from me and say, he's pretty strange or eccentric. And then years later, they said, he was just an early sensitive. And being tuned into his body, as, as I am, noticing that what I was feeling was not what I was feeling. I was feeling what the performer on stage or in the in the album was doing. You know, when a lot of people record, there's a producer, and you have to you know you have to do multiple takes, and there's a lot of stress going on in the studio. So the more stressed you are when you're recording, because if you're playing a Mozart sonata, everyone knows the notes, and if you make a mistake. In concert or in recordings, you have to do it over, or people will get upset. The critics will, will you know, really criticize you. That's not my reality. I'm playing my own music, and if I play a note that I didn't want to, I could disguise it, or if it's on recording, I just erase it. So I don't have that stress that most every other musician has when they're recording or performing in concert. I just let the music flow. And that's really been part of my key. I get into the flow state and I make that connection where my own energy fields are balanced. My brain waves are balanced. I'm in a deep alpha state and there's a high coherence. So that is that energy field is also recorded onto all of my recordings, whether it was the old analog tapes or LPs. And it even transcends the digital technology so that it works on my CDs. And that's why people said from the earlier CDs, my CDs sound warmer than most other CDs on the marketplace. And there are technical reasons for that, but there were also, uh, shall we say, psychic reasons for that and energetic reasons for that. That's amazing. I, I'm so glad that you happen to be working on your memoir right now because all, all of this sounds fresh in your mind. So it is. So, so the audience is really benefiting from that. I've been working on it for a couple of years. It started some years ago. Then I changed the whole concept. Uh, rather than doing what I did in my first two books to give a lot of information, the memoir is some of the stories, some of which I've told you, some of which are fun, some of which, uh, shall we say, the concept of Forgiveness for ripoffs and intellectual theft, uh, IP intellectual property theft. You know, you you can forgive, but uh, forgetting, it's there's some fascinating stories, and uh, people won't believe some of the stuff I had to go through. And uh, just about a year ago, I was interviewed of all things by a hip hop podcast DJ, and one of the questions after we he knew some of these stories and heard some of the others. Uh, in fact. He came to me because he said, do you know how many people have ripped off the and used samples from your fast song on christening for listening? He said, hundreds all over the world. And I had no idea. He said, so how do you feel about being ripped off by so many people? And that took me aback, you know, for a moment. I'm happy they use it. It would be nice if they got clearance and paid me some royalties for all of that, uh, since it uh, fueled their money-making capacity. But the concept is, uh, and, and he said, so why didn't you give up? And the answer was pretty much, I didn't have a choice. This was my calling, and I think you used that earlier. What else was I going to do? I could be a 
college you know, music teacher again, or I could do private lessons, or I could do this. But what I'm here to be doing is what I've been doing. I just needed to do it better. So that's where, you know, we learn about it's not just what happens to you. It's how you deal with it, just like stress and resilience. And then I really had some major attitude adjustments because when I got into this work, I was, my concept was, and what my training was, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. Don't talk to me about business. You know, I'll hire somebody else to do it. And then it turned out that they didn't do such a good job. And if I really wanted to stay in business, I needed to learn a lot of this myself. I still don't do bookkeeping. I hire a bookkeeper. But in terms of a lot of the other materials that get written, uh, even today, the most recent uh, ads that I work on, uh, I, I lay it out. I work with a graphic artist, but I write the headlines. And the headline of this one is what I also talk about in my lectures and at expos and on the Zoom podcast. I'll be speaking about this uh, in a week at the New Life Expo in uh, South Florida and at the expo in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco next year. And train, learn how to train your brain, tune your chakras, and balance your biofield with the healing powers of music. Now, that gives you benefits. If you know what chakras are, you're intrigued. If you don't know what chakras are, you don't care. But this audience, for, for these concepts, since yoga introduced a concept of chakras to America, people know about tuning the chakras. And indeed, one of the scientists that I work primarily with, Itzhak Bentoff, did the research uh, covered in his book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum, that yeah. showed, that demonstrated that when you tune the chakras, and there were different ways to do it, yoga, meditation, watching a sunset, this will all get you into that state. When you tune the chakras, this sets up a different breathing pattern. It sets up a pattern where the blood that goes out of the heart up into the brain goes in a harmonic and periodic and regular fashion rather than the usual random fashion. And that pulses the brain that because the brain is an electrical organism sets up an associated electromagnetic field around the brain that uh, in terms of physics entrains and resonates to the Schumann resonance. And that's why you feel so good when you get into a deeply relaxed state. Your brain waves, instead of working with one hemisphere and half a brain, you're working with whole brain. You're tuning into the basic bioelectric fields of the earth. And we could do this with music. You could do it with tuning forks. That'll help you get the tuning forks. As a musician, I'm good for five minutes, but then I kind of get bored. Not a lot of rhythm. Not a lot of melody. So there are people that make their whole careers and there's a lot of, and they're doing good work. For me, my calling was to take that concept. And that's why the instrument that I first went to the public with, the Fender Rhodes electric piano, was unique in the field. There were some jazz artists were using it. I first heard it uh, on a Miles Davis record, but I didn't know what it was. I heard it first in person when the band that I was sitting in with in San Francisco was opening for Herbie Hancock and his band. And when Herbie was warming up, he played a glissando and a couple of arpeggios and I went out of my body. I was in the instant meditative state 
and uh, went up to him and said, uh, Herbie, what is that instrument? And he says, oh, that, that's a Fender Rhodes electric piano. Miles maybe played it on the last album. And I said, and I said to myself, that's my future. How do I get one? And I sold my spare trumpet and my spare guitar, borrowed some money, and that's how I got my first uh, electric piano. And that's when I started doing public performances in 1970. Before I had any albums, before anything else, I was just doing small concerts, lugging this big two-piece piece of equipment around in my station wagon. And uh, that's how I began sharing the music. And people said, wow, nothing else sounds like that. And nothing else did. So that was why uh, some of the reviewers said the sound of new age music is the sound of Halpern's electric piano. It was like tuning forks played with a keyboard. So that gave mm. me the best of both worlds. And the other uh, ancient tradition that I built upon was Tibetan bowls and Japanese temple bowls where, and I'm sorry, I don't have one handy, but when you strike them, it you have the first sound, the bong, but then if you listen carefully, you'll go bong, Well, that is brainwave entrainment. So I was the first person to go public and said, ancient Tibetan bowls are brainwave entrainment instruments. This is mm -hmm. a technology that they developed thousands of years ago. We have information, historical records in China, in Egypt, where, and then of course, the church bells are clear harmonic instruments that entrain and resonate in the body to alter your consciousness. It's not just a church bell to tell you what time it is. These were used for psychic and meditative uses, but they only had one main tone. So what I do with the electric piano is to go beyond that and make music out of it. But using that, that tonal immediacy of the sound itself. And that's always been a hallmark. And every album that I have features that kind of beautiful sound. Mm. And what makes the, what makes the roads... Uh, keyboard special. It, it seems to be unique in the world of keyboards and sound. It does. Let me just grab a couple of things here for a second. Yeah. The uh, the construction is literally what Harold Rhodes, who invented it, this R H O D E S. He invented this keyboard mechanism. He attached a keyboard that he made to a series of basically tuning forks. He called them tone bars that were tuned to the notes of a scale. And this was an electromechanical instrument. It was not a synthesizer. This was invented before synthesizers. Everyone, because it was uh, hand put together, everyone plays a little differently. When uh, I left Herbie Hancock, I went to the big store in San Francisco, Don Weir's Music City. They had about 20 in the store, I played every one of them, and only one of them felt right yes. to me. So I bought that one, and it's model 007. So oh my god! I was at the very beginning of this, and uh, and then when um, uh, his protege uh, Joseph Branstetter came out with an advanced version in 2010 or so, 
I read about it, placed my order. It took a year to, uh, to get to me because I built slowly. Uh, and that really kicked off the second major phase of my recording career that manifested in Deep Alpha, in Deep Theta, and so many other albums, including my new one, Ocean of Bliss, Ocean of Bliss Volume 2, uh, and Echoes of a Dream, that all of these feature that instrument, as well as the solo piano on Chakra Suite. So that's a lot of what I've been working with. And part of that was because, as I've always described that I am the first person in my audience. When I got my first electric piano in my little cottage, I set it up. It was like a one-room cottage, so I didn't have a meditation room. It was all in one room. But I'd sit at that keyboard that had its own built-in speakers, and I would go into instant meditation. As soon as I play the opening arpeggio, my brain, I could feel my brainwave shift, and it was legal. It was non-addictive, no harmful side effects, energy renewable, non-addictive, you know, all those things. And that's what I started talking about with the music. Uh, which was why it, it, other people started picking up on it. And of course, in the world of anthropology and cultural anthropology, etc., there's a lot of use of sound and music and drums uh, around the world, but it's also tied in with the use of certain other substances for healing, psychological, physiological, etc. We're now seeing... Uh, psychedelics and uh, psychedelic medicine being finally resurrected from being illegal because it's been used around the world for thousands of years. So a couple of years ago, I came out with this album, tying yes. in the 5,000 year history of healing with cannabis and healing with music and uh, put an album out that featured uh, that understanding. But I also pointed out that if you, you don't have to smoke anything, just listening to the music will create an audio contact high, as I call yes. it, ECH. And, um, and that's been true of all of my music, but I never came up with that concept before this album. And I have to tell you that it was smoking uh, a particular strain that a dispensary had invited to me be a brand ambassador for that not only uh, inspired many of the compositions on this album, but inspired some of the words to describe it. So it really was a coherent, full uh, modality uh, working together. Of, uh, and what we've heard about for hundreds of years that cannabis and music can enhance creativity and uh, breakthroughs. Well, because uh, physically I have a very low uh, tolerance. So I was never able to do very much of anything. I never, you know, very rarely in my whole life have I ever been able to drink a whole can of beer or, you know, smoke an entire joint. So I got into homeopathic amounts. So, and part of that was also because in college, none of us had money. We didn't have access. So if you had something, I would have to make a joint last for a month. And I would then put my mind to enhance the little stimulation I would get from the uh, from the herb, but I then learned how to do that with music, and then without that, and uh, and that's why 
the whole body of work. Most of my albums have not been composed with green energy assisting, but definitely I experienced breakthroughs working on this album. That would make sense because traditional native shaman in South America would have the plants speaking to them. That's how they learned about the healing powers of a lot of the plants in the jungle. And I said to myself, I bet that would happen even from things that are grown here in California. I'm not going to travel to South America to have a plant talk to me. I'll just, you know, order some. And uh, if I get the right blend, and a lot of the blends, a lot of, it's called strains because of the genetics, don't work. Some of them would just put me to sleep. Some would just, you know, make me hungry. And many people have had that experience over the last 50, 60 years. But when you find something that works, just like with music, when you find the right music for you or the right instrument or the right uh, combination of foods or whatever it is, use it. And that was something I learned early on. When you find that which works for you, don't worry about if other people say, oh, that's not good or that doesn't work. Trust yourself. And my body uh, early on taught me if I was allergic to something. Uh, without going to school, if I would eat a candy bar in 1968 between set three and four on the bandstand, the rest of the band would get sugar energy. I would fall asleep. I started noticing that my body reacts differently than other people's bodies. And then I learned if I eat a tomato, I break out in hives. I didn't need a book to tell me some people are allergic. And yet other people, other books say, if you're a male and you want to keep your prostate in shape, eat a lot of tomatoes, eat a lot of tomato sauce. <laughs> and I wound up looking like a tomato. Uh, this was not a functional way of operating for myself. So you need to validate, pay attention for yourself. And that's true with any music, but it's particularly uh, true for myself. And that's why my bestsellers are bestsellers because karmically or musically or whatever the, the way it happens, the music that I have been able to record and produce and share with the world works for a lot of people. And uh, it's a blessing and an honor for me to have uh, been doing that. But as you mentioned, I learned early on that that's my calling. You know, some people have a calling to go into the priestcraft, uh, into mm -hmm. the priesthood. Well, that was never my calling. But in the musical priesthood, that was. I was yeah. not going to go into a, obviously not a Catholic. Uh, I wasn't going to go into that tradition or a Jewish or any other uh, traditional religious connotation. But in a spiritual connotation, that's always what I've been uh, aligned with. But you don't want to talk to the Grammys about spiritual coherence. And uh, that's not what mm. they're about. And I've actually also been told, uh, without mentioning names, we don't want people like you in the Grammys. And that's a whole other thing. But yet, you could have all the demonic, all yeah. the uh, ACDC. That's fine with them. But to talk about peace and love without making and to talk about meditation. I mean, how many meditative albums have been hit albums on the Billboard charts? Not very many. In fact, what, the only truly meditative album that I know about, or one of the only, and the one that was on the Billboard New Age chart for 64 weeks, was Deep Alpha, which is my album. And that tells me that it had an effect on a lot of people who would buy it very quickly. And that's the beauty of healing music. The effect can last, it can happen 
within seconds. And then you say, oh, I like this. This feels good. Let me listen more. Whereas with most music, in fact, when I first uh, came out into the public, I went to the field of music therapy and I said, I need music to help me relax. What do you have? And they said, well, if you listen to this symphony all the way through after an hour, you'll be relaxed. And I said, excuse me, I come from New York. <laughs> I don't have an hour. After an hour, I'll be so strung out. What do you have that could get me there in a New York minute? And they say, there's no music around that could do that. And then I would hold up my first album and say, there is now. And that changed the field of music therapy uh, and actually caused a big split. The people that only wanted music therapy to deal with classical, dead white European composers or people that would op uh, were open to the new realm. And those were the progressive music therapists. So uh, there's been an interesting, you know, important split. Uh, and there were some great people there, but there were a lot of people who were just addicted, as my professors were, to classical structure. And some of them actually said, if I turned off my left brain, my analytical, intellectual uh, brain function, it would mean that all of my life was wasted and I'm not going to give up all of my life. So the people have actually said that to me. If I if I allowed myself to go into a meditative state with your music, then it means that everything else I was doing is wrong. And I said, no, it just means that there were different uses. But don't try to measure my effect by your effect, because I'm the new guy in town. And uh, if you really read what Mozart and some and Liszt and Scriabin and some other great composers were talking. They were talking about some of the same concepts. And Debussy and Ravel had inklings of that. And those were some of my ideological uh, forebears. But uh, their music doesn't sound anything like what I do. And that's why I'm the guy for the 20th and 21st century. Absolutely. And uh, like for the people who mentioned that uh, all of their training would have been in vain. Well, you know, technical skill is never in vain. Right. I mean, ever, you know, that's, we really can never get enough of it because technical skill is ultimately how you, that's the foundation you're going to improvise from anyhow. So right. yeah, they, they did a good thing. Now it's just time to loosen up. <laughs> and right. you, you mentioned the, your, your Rhodes piano 007, which is amazing. And there was a track on, a Hendrix record, and I forget which one it was, but it, it was, uh, I've always just called it laid back and groove on a rainy day. Yes. And it, and it does feature, I believe, a Rhodes piano. And honestly, as amazing as Hendrix was, the Rhodes piano steals that track. I mean, that is really it. I will check that. Uh, I That was on the double album. I I'll don't say, know that that was a Rhodes. It was Stevie Winwood on organ is what I'm okay. remembering. Yeah, I, I did know it was a, I'm not sure if it was a Rhodes. Yeah, it definitely could have been something else. But that keyboard, that guy who was playing it, he got what you understand, what you're where yes, you're coming exactly. from. He and that and it just steals the whole track. As amazing as Hendrix was on that, it just it 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 stole the show. Right, and and and, and that was one of my favorite tracks from that album. And had I had access to an organ at that point. That was when I was just really starting to get my keyboard chops together. Stevie Winwood uh, has always been one of my favorite musicians, uh, and that was one of the favorite tracks. And yeah. I, I, I never spoke to Hendrix. 
I was within a few feet of him in 1969 at a wow. club in Greenwich Village. <laughs> he was surrounded by other musicians. It was at a, a, a the evening was B.B. King was a feature piece. Hendrix was mm. just checking him out. And he was the first person I ever saw an aura. It was a huge mm. blue electric aura. I hitchhiked from Buffalo to Toronto to interview him when he was doing a gig in Toronto. Uh, he got busted, and I got busted trying to get over the bridge because uh, I didn't. I was hitchhiking, and didn't uh, have a way. I was turned back from uh, from Canada because I didn't have an exit visa, and then I couldn't get back to America. It's like that movie because I hadn't been in Canada to come out. So I was on the bridge for several hours. So I got to the concert late, but then found out that he had been busted. He wasn't doing any interviews that day anyway. Uh, so I never got to speak to him about that, but he described his concept of electric church music. Yes. He was looking to change and get out of what he was doing and open up another thing. And boy, if I had, you know, that was before I came out West. So before I had ever seen a Rhodes and hardly anybody else had seen it. So uh, who knows? But uh, I would have loved to. There was one, one of the fantasies. And that's part of a Carlos Santana wound up doing years later with his wife, uh, with uh, John Coltrane's wife, uh, doing some music that I know Hendrix, uh, I mean, Santana learned a lot from Hendrix and vice versa, that there was the power of the electric guitar with the tone that Santana was using. And then, of course, Santana's spiritual awakenings, which he talks about in his autobiography, which is incredible, and oh, the power okay. of tone. So Santana and I have some very similar... Uh, teachers in our memoir, because we all learned from Coltrane and Miles Davis. So it's not surprising, but we took our music into different, different areas. Yeah. And your the Rhodes piano that you specifically chose. So you, you played a couple and there was one that spoke to you. And I like that because it speaks to the animus of things to, you know, like uh, I've done a lot of metal work and, and metal itself. So those tuning forks that were in that one, you know, metal, every yeah. every uh, substance, especially metal, it has an animus, it has a consciousness. So yep. from the very beginning, 007 and you had a resonance. And the touch, the actually the touch of the keys, some are soggy, just like grand piano. Everyone is different. Well, you know, there'll be similarities, but some are really hard to press. Some are like butter, and you could just, I could play like that. Some people could play on anyone. The rock musicians pound on it. It doesn't yeah. matter. But for what I do, the very subtle filigrees of sound, I need a smooth, easy-to-play keyboard. And that's what I have at home, uh, my Yamaha grand piano. That's what the studios have typically had. I played a couple of great Steinways. But, you know, don't ever put me on a Baldwin because the notes are so hard to play. Uh, so that's at my concert writers when I was doing lots of concerts. Yeah. You know, no Young Chang. They got better. And maybe Baldwin is better now. But in the 1980s, I sometimes played pianos that were so bad, I didn't even sound like me. They were very short concerts. Yeah, I understand. Um, so I'm not sure how long I've got you for. I just wanted to, it's one thing I really wanted to make sure that we you know, touched on because this really speaks to the audience that listens to us is uh, the life of an autodidactic living life without a plan B. So, oh, yes. and along with that, I'll just throw in the question of uh, learning to play. Cause many people have 
they know they want to play the bass. They know they want to play the drums. They, they want to play guitar, the tablas. Or maybe they don't know what speaks to them yet, but they want to express themselves. But to have that that courage to play, to find that way to begin expressing themselves. Because a lot of people want to learn to play, but they don't want to play what's already been done. They want to actually create something that they feel. So, you know, the life of an honored didactic, living life without a plan B, any tips on the courage it takes to do that? Because the, self-ta- the self-taught artist is a big deal. I mean, um, Steve Jobs, he mentioned, he said, real artists ship. <laughs> he, he really he really brought it into focus there. He was like, hey, if you're, real, if you're a real artist, you're shipping something, you know? And so... S- spell that word. Uh, real artists ship, S-H-I-P. Okay. Well, yeah. So, so, so what I would say to that is, is several things. Yeah. Number one, my training was, I did come up through some tradition uh, early on the Auburn's Conservatory trumpet method. So I got my technical chops started, but then into improvisation, I took lessons. I learned all the scales. I learned which scales go with which chords, what we're taught in jazz. And I see this in rock also is you need to know what's what's gone before. You need to study the masters. You need to know the field. Anytime you could see a master like Keith Urban uh, talking about, you know, uh, playing or, or now on The Voice or American Idol, where you have these masters, people that I didn't know knew as much as they know, Katy Perry, uh, brilliant. Uh, of course, Jennifer Hudson and Blake Sheldon, all these people have paid their dues. So I watch The Voice. In the early days, I watched American Idol. I hold my guitar. I play my guitar, play my bass along with them. I'm listening all the time. When I listen to most music, I can't shut off my left brain. I'm always paying attention because Mm -hmm. you can always learn something, whether it's good or bad, from a master musician. So that's one of the things I would say to anybody. And then follow yourself. But you need to have the physical skills. You need to get the muscle memory in your fingers. So if you're playing piano or guitar or or trumpet. uh, Another thing, when I started hanging out with uh, great jazz musicians, uh, like Larry Coriel, guitar player, he would show me a couple of his exercises, his finger exercises. Mm. And when at the concert that night, he played two songs that were his finger exercises with a rock beat. And I said, what a great concept. He'd get practicing on stage. And no one else knew that. So those are things that I learned. And I've had a chance to get, and sometimes it might be a very quick lesson. It might be here, check this out. And that would give me enough to go on for the next two months. And then I'd come back and say, what else you got? When I was uh, in college, I was working with uh, and started a, an eight-piece jazz rock band. I was playing trumpet. The alto saxophone player that we wound up working with was head and shoulders above any other musician, any any other jazz musician, horn player I'd ever met. And when he would do some amazing things, like play the solo that I played that was pretty good, he would play it back to me when it was his time to solo, backwards and forwards, changing the key, faster, slower. And I said, how did you do that? And he'd give me a couple of clues. I'd go home and practice eight hours, you know, overnight, come back the next day to rehearsal and 
do as much as I can remember from what he did. And they said, okay, now that you learned that, check this out. So it could be just a two-minute lesson and a week of study or a month of study. But that was, so when we saw autodidact, there was a lot of rehearsal going on, uh, a lot of practice. So that's one of the things. And then at a certain point, you also need to record yourself. So you need to listen back. And then some of the things that I've learned in my career, I only heard and learned from in the studio when I listened to the playback. And there were some times that I said, I don't remember playing that. Well, as the engineer said, you're the only one in the room, so it must have been you. And that's how I learned some of these the, some of these techniques and some of the things that go together. And then other times when I get into the meditative space when I'm listening, I hear other levels of music. And that's not something I can teach, but I can, I can say that that's how I learned that my muse or whatever aspect of my higher self or higher dimensional beings are helping inspire me. And the best word that people, people understand is my muse, that some of those ideas I know were not mine. Yes. So I've always talked about the concept of co-composer and co-creation. And that's, uh, that's always been my perspective. And that will be in the, in the memoir for sure. Yeah. That's amazing because yeah. Improvisation is, uh, I find the best way I can, the best analogy I could make is how, well, in new age thought, they call it channeling, which yes, ultimately exactly. can be channeling, you know, it can be channeling one's God source, higher self, an entity, whatever, but ultimately it's channeling, you know, when you're doing it. And to me, like that was really electric and amazing moment for me. That first time when, uh, somebody was just playing the chords for kind of blue by Coltrane right? and, and I was just playing the melody and time disappeared and I didn't even know what happened. Right. You know, and I went, it, it's almost challenging to the ego because you didn't do it. Exactly. And that's why so many jazz musicians don't talk about it. But and because it's ego. No, I practiced for 20 years and damn it, you better be impressed. Same thing with classical. But some of them do know that it's channeling. And as we're finding out now, Coltrane was channeling. Oh, really? And uh, and there were a lot of other people. Were, well, I, I, when I first came out, I was using that word and got uh, every door closed for every interview. So I learned that in 1973, 74, 75, in the early years of my career, I could not use that word. But that's that's what's been happening. And that's where some of the breakthroughs have really have really happened for me. So uh, and that's that's actually the other reason why. My name doesn't appear on my first album because it was channeled. I said, well, you can't give a, a royalty to somebody without a body. And uh, that's when the store said, well, get somebody with a body to put their name on. It better be you. So that was, that was the beginning of, of that. But, uh, yeah. And and if you read uh, Mozart's letters, he talks Oh, we hung up again. I'm sure that uh, Stephen Halpin will be right back. We left it at Mozart's letters. We're right at an hour and three minutes. So we'll see if um, Stephen comes back here. If not, it was a great show. When people say Mozart. Oh, 
he was back for a second. Okay, we'll just bear with it. I'm sure that Stephen Hopper. Okay, there you are. Can you hear me? Oh yes. Okay, so, you can hear me. Okay, you were just saying Mozart's. You were right. just saying Mozart's letters. Yeah. So the, I first heard the story from Gene Houston, one of my one of the great teachers and mentors. Uh, they say Mozart, how do you get inspired for all these compositions? He said, Well, sometimes I'll just be walking down the road and my head will be filled with music, and I write it down. And I thank God that it sounds Mozartian. And that's also what you saw in the movie Amadeus, when Mozart is taking dictation from somewhere else, and Salieri is taking down Mozart's dictation. And everyone is interested in uh, Salieri taking Mozart's script. No one except me and a couple other people are saying, wait a minute, who's channeling the music that Mozart is taking the transcription from? So that's that's really the secret history of a lot of composition. Uh, that's another whole uh, uh, interview that we get into, but you definitely opened up a, a big situation. But I, I know we talked about uh, uh, needing to bring this to a close. So um, I'll, well, I'll, let you, I'll let you do that. Yeah, well, this has been amazing. And of course, I still have, you know, of course, pages of questions to ask. And we never got into initiation and chakra suite and AM, EMF pollution, stress reduction, reducing music. But as we, we, we did on, in a way. Yeah, we, we, we actually did all of those things we actually did hit on. So we we, we did. Um, and there's so many more things just letting people know that there's, there's just this is just the beginning. But you know what? I think that Okay, we channeled it. There you go. I think we really did hit the the essence of what this all is about, and this is definitely very valuable to people. Absolutely. Um, and as we as we close shop here, uh, as we end the, uh, the 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 jam session here, I would just ask: um, You've got deep alpha and deep theta. Um, what? would those two be good for as far as for, for people to check out like when would they use deep alpha when would they when would they use deep theta okay and, then, and that's all and then then we'll just close shop all right the albums are related some of the same tracks are in each album the difference is the brainwave frequency that i add to the music and uh the deep alpha is entrained at eight cycles per second that's Relaxation, relaxed alertness, you can work with that. In the background, get you ready to do writing or studying or reading helps you focus. The deep theta is, and that's also good for tuning in to meditation, a lighter meditation. The deep theta is a deeper meditation. It's where you go into uh, a, a deeper level of creativity. And also the deep theta state is related to a more deeper healing and where you could then harness the powers of your own consciousness to instruct your own DNA and your molecules to express for optimal health. Deepak Chopra has written a whole book on that called uh, Super Genes. The concept of taking responsibility uh, and being active participant in your own healing. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton wrote the breakthrough book, The Biology of Belief. Yeah, Read on that. And Theta is a state you want to be in. And there's a whole uh, trademark uh, organization called Theta Healing. So those are the things that you want to uh, uh, bring into the awareness, but the music will take you there automatically. 
Absolutely, yeah. And every question I had in one way or the other, it did truly actually get answered while we were doing this. Right. And I will mention um, uh, your beautiful picture. Your first album was a rhododendron, and that was the inspiration for the book uh, Secret Life of Plants. No, other way around. Oh, really? Back and forth? Okay. How was that? Uh, very quickly. Uh, that book came out, and part of the team that I worked with were Randy Fonts and a couple other people who worked with Marcel Vogel and are mentioned and featured in The Secret Life of Plants. So that was why, uh, but no plant ever went into a store to buy the album. So it was a scientific photo that tied into the research, but was not a good marketing aspect. So wow. that's how that all comes together. But I, I do need to run because okay. I got to get over to my dentist. All right. Well, uh, thank people, you. Check out my website, stephenhoppermusic.com, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash stephenhoppermusic. A lot of information, a lot of articles, and a lot of visuals, and a lot of music that will take you uh, to the next level. If you have questions, write Craig or uh, tweet me, and we'll take it from there. Sounds perfect. And uh, all of that will be in the show notes. So thank you for, thank you, Stephen Halpern, for being on Radiant Creators. It's been amazing. I'll let you know when I get this up and uploaded, I'll send you a link. And oh, this has been amazing. Thanks for being here for the jam session. Thank you, Craig. God <laughs> thank bless. Thank you. Bye -bye. Stay tuned. You too.